You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, Mark 9, 2-8. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one earth could bleach them. And there appeared to be Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came down out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mark. You all may be seated now for a while. We want to ask you to stand for a little bit. The title of today's message is, So What is the Good News? And this title comes to you from one of my friends. I've already named him today. His name is Chris Brewer. He preached here a few weeks ago. And I have the privilege and the honor of being able to occasionally be on a podcast called Speak Easy Theology, which is a podcast that is run by Dr. Chris Green. And if you, if you go to it and subscribe to it, I'm on there a bunch of times talking about Yankee Candles and Christmas and all the stuff that I like to talk about while they talk about Jesus, whatever. And uh, on there, we just take scripture and we go. We just go and we start talking. And, you know, if we had this transfiguration text on one of those podcasts, we would start talking about things like how James and John saw Moses and Elijah standing at the right and the left hand of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so they go to Jesus and say, hey, when you enter your kingdom, can we stand one at your left hand and one at your right hand like Moses and Elijah just were? That was pretty dope. And Jesus will say, well, here's the thing. My Mount of Transfiguration was really getting you ready for the more important mountain, which is the mountain of disfiguration that I'm about to go through. And you can be at my right hand and my left hand if you want to, but I want you to see first who gets to be at my right hand and my left hand, criminals who are dying with me. And we would talk about maybe the misconception that we have of power where we think power really is being in this high and lofty, shiny place of authority, looking down on everybody else who's not bright and shiny and in a place of authority as we are. And how Jesus turns that upside down and says, no, 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 no. I'm going to be numbered with the least of these because they are at my right hand and my left hand. We might talk about the fact that Jesus, who is the light of the world, became bright and that the light he was bright with on the Mount of Transfiguration is not the light of the sun, but it's the light that gives the sun its light. And we might talk about how he was, he was brightened by an uncreated light, a light that we can't describe or see other than in the face of Jesus Christ on the cross. We might talk about things like that. 
And we would be talking about those things and how they were in this high and holy mountain. And then they came down. And when they came down, they came down into the tumult of demons and sickness and, and mental issues. And, and they couldn't wrestle out the demons. And Jesus had to. And we might talk about how we want to stay up in those high and holy places and ignore what's going on down here. But the ministry of Jesus never stays in those high and holy places. He needs to go back down to where the trouble is. And so maybe the reason why we're always praying, Lord, get me out of trouble, Lord, get me out of trouble, Lord, get me out of trouble, is because we're always in trouble, but maybe we're always in trouble because that's where Jesus needs to be. That doesn't sell cassettes. And then at some point, we'd be talking about all of these things, and Chris Brewer will say, okay, guys, this was great, but for anyone listening... What's the good news? And every time we'd get annoyed with him. We just said the good news, Chris. And every time he's like, no, 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 give me something. That's the good news. And so I titled this message, So What's the Good News, after my dear friend. And I want to offer you some simple good news this morning. And this message is for anybody who ever has that moment. And I, I want you to hear this. I want you to be prayerful during this message. This message is for anybody who has that moment where you're, you're in the middle of working as hard as you can, as lovingly as you can, as patiently as you can. You're working as hard as you possibly can and you have that realization, I just don't think I'm ever gonna see the end result of this really hard work. It feels like it's in vain. So hard every day offering myself to so many other people every day, saying sorry for all of my sins every day. I was at Chris Green's ordination. Ian has a picture of it, me and Jacqueline and Chris. And at this ordination while I was watching, my, one of my very best friends in the whole world, somebody who's taught me about Jesus more than anybody I've ever met in my life, uh, at watching him get ordained, I was sitting there thinking to myself in my seat, why do we do this? It's not going to work. If everybody's like, what are you going to ask Jesus when you get to heaven? I'm going to ask him about the Old Testament and violence. I'm going to ask him about child. So I'm going to ask him why he invented being a pastor. Because it never seems to work. Why not just fix it? I just sat there like, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a parent whether you're an employee or an employer, whether you're a friend, whatever it is that we're in, whatever it is that we're involved in, you got to take this picture of my wife down. I can't stop looking at her. <laughs> whatever it is that we're in, is it going to work? What's it amounting to? And once in a while, I feel like my breath is taken away by this thought. Is it really going anywhere? It's hard work. It's hard work to just be by yourself and get things happening right. And I thought, you know what? In, in my seat in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I actually thought of this text, and it's why I'm preaching it today instead of four weeks ago when it was supposed to be preached. Because I think there's some good news here in the Mount of Transfiguration story that helps us when we feel like our labor just might be in vain. Am I the only one who feels this way? Is there somebody else who feels this way? You're just staring at me. You're looking at me like you love me, which I appreciate. But I want you to, 
I want to be with you. I want us to be together on this one. This is a word that God gave me for me for you. This word here is an answer to one of my prayers that I pray for me, not you. And now I get to share it with you. But this is an us thing right here. Our labor feels in vain when, and I want to just talk about, there's, there's characters in this story, and each of them to me, and I'm being playful with the text, and I'm taking some liberties here, and I'm being, like St. Augustine said, I'm just, I'm being playfully fun with the text today. And I think there are different characters who show us different areas, different reasons why we feel like our hard work in the world might not amount to much, and what Jesus has to say to help us out of that mindset into a good news mindset. And so one of them would be, our labor feels in vain when our chance to influence is taken from us. And I want to look at James and John here. James and John went up on the mountain, and Moses is talking, and Elijah is talking, and Peter is talking, and James and John stay silent. They don't say anything at all. And I just thought, there are so many times in my life where I look back on a moment and say, I really wish I said something when I had the chance. I really wish I did something when I had the chance. Has anybody been there before? Like you, in the moment you weren't sure, and then maybe days later, maybe hours later, maybe decades later, you look back and say, I really, in that moment, I really should have said something. And now that moment to be influential has been taken from me. I can't go back there and say the thing. Or maybe I can't go back there and say the thing that I said differently, better, more lovingly, I wish I could go back and love in that moment differently than I did. It's gone. And it makes us feel like our labor is in vain. But watch this. Shortly after this, Jesus will stand in front of Pontius Pilate, and their wonderful conversation goes like this. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you this king of the Jews? This is funny about that. You go on to the internet and everybody's trying to argue about what truth is, yes? It's getting out of hand. It's getting out of hand. I watched a reel of a guy who literally said, I have decided that I can live three days for every one day that you're living. Six to 12, that's one day. 12 to six, that's day two. Six to 12, that's day three. So by the time you lived one day, I've lived three. It's like, um, it's gonna be funny when you realize it takes me one day what it takes you three days to do. Like this is gonna be, It's like, we're, we're really trying to find what is truth here. When I, when I see that, I, don't, I think it's funny, but I also think this is indicative of people who are trying to figure out what's the truth. And here's a moment where Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? And then it says, after this, Pilate took Jesus outside. Why? Because Jesus never answered the question. He was silent because truth is not a doctrinal stance. 
truth is not a scripture verse. Truth is not a correct comment about the world. Those things will never put a life back together even if they're right. Truth is what Jesus was about to go do on the cross. Truth is a life lived with self-offering love. Well, why do I bring that up? Because any time I look back to say, man, I should have done something to tell that person the truth, to, to indoctrinate them with the truth, I could have said something, I could have corrected something, I could have argued better, I could have made a better case. This verse says, I'm taking that up into the transfiguration with me. And I'm giving you an opportunity to live a life of self-offering love. And any moment that you go back and that you think you lost something because you didn't say something, a life lived according to the cross now will heal every moment of silence where you should have said something at any point in your life. Because the truth is not a fact to be spoken but a life offered in love. You live that life starting today, and it will ripple backwards, and it will ripple forwards, and it will permeate everybody around you with the truth. Now, you say, well, okay, I was hoping you would say something much cooler than that. But the reality is, when faced directly with an opportunity, and here's the crazy thing, later on in the epistles, the writer of the epistle will say, in, and I think it was Paul to Timothy, would say, and Jesus, who made the good confession in front of Pontius Pilate. What good confession did he make? Pontius Pilate asked him, what is truth? This is Jesus' moment to make the great confession. And what if the great confession Jesus made was his silence in saying, if I answer this with a word, it will be so much less than the truth you're about to see, Pilate. So what if the best thing that we can do for somebody in our life is to not speak into it, but live into it with cruciform love? I have a feeling when we look back, that labor will not be in vain. So if you're here and your hand feels limp like in that picture we showed, when I think back, I just didn't grab onto the moment like I could have. Jesus is saying, I got your hand, and I got that moment. Live as an offering. And all the moments that you missed, that goodness will fill back into them. Well, I don't think that that's possible. Well, I, you know what? Good. It is. And I know it is. Because I've had moments where I feel somebody wronged me, and then years later, I see the way they're living now, and it he actually heals what they did to me then. When I see the change in somebody down the road, even if they never go back and say, I'm sorry about that thing, when I see them growing in the Lord, it actually does something to the memory bank of what happened back here, and it eases it a little bit, because the goodness that's happening in them is trickling backwards and healing me 10 years ago. If we don't believe these things, it is not sacramental, Pentecostal, miracle-ridden Christianity that we're believing. So it's important to know that what we do today works backwards to yesterday. Why? Because he is what? He is today Alpha 
and omega. Whatever we do in him today is also done in yesterday and done into tomorrow. So you didn't miss, the, you didn't miss a moment. You have a moment now to live into all the moments you think you missed. Our labor feels in vain when our chance to prove ourselves is taken. Elijah's kind of a funny story. Who Like Elijah is talking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Elijah is a super powerful prophet, but the very last few parts of his life, he's scared to death of Jezebel. He runs and hides in the wilderness to get away from her. He's terrified of dying. He's afraid of getting murdered. Read the story very carefully. He even lies to God about being the only prophet that's left when God shows him, no, 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 you're not the only prophet that's left. There's 7,000 other prophets that are left. Oh, yeah, them. But I'm the only one. He ends his career being taken up into, and, and we see this as kind of majestic, and in one way it is, but he, he ends his career being taken up into heaven through chariots of fire, but part of me feels like he needed to be taken up in chariots of fire because he was scared of everything. He wouldn't have went to heaven if God didn't show him chariots and horses and bows and arrows and slingshots and stuff. So he was taken up in like this, this huge like entourage of secret service, heavenly secret service men and women take him up to heaven. And it's like he might look back and there might be moments in my life where I look back and say, man, I handled that situation, but I was just, I didn't, they didn't see, they didn't see the real me. There's times where I leave a party that maybe you are at. And I get in the car, I'm like, oh, I said too many things. Oh, my gosh, I wimped out when they, somebody asked me that question. I should have been stronger. There are times where we look at things we handled and look back and say, oh, my God, I was terrified. I was scared to face that. I was scared to take a stand. I was scared to say that difficult thing. I was afraid of rejection. I was afraid of embarrassing myself. I wanted to go on that interview, but I just the thought of that job terrified me, and I didn't think I could handle it, and now I'm living in this lesser job, and I think I could have had that other one, but I just, I didn't, I missed the chance to prove myself. But Jesus transfigures that. Listen to what Jesus says when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus said to him, Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Listen to what he says. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? See what Jesus just said? He said, I could call on those same chariots. But I won't. Because I want to face all the things that you were too afraid to face for you. I want to stand in the moment that you were too afraid to stand in and get it right in a way that you couldn't. I want to stand in your moments of insecurity and be secure for you. I want to stand in your moments where boldness was needed 
but cowardice is what happened, and I will be bold for you. I will face down Goliath for you, as David says to his brothers, and Jesus, I will face down death for you. Do you actually know that the root word in Gethsemane is actually the word Gath, which is where Goliath was from? So when Jesus is face down in the valley of Gethsemane, he's taking on the spirit of his ancestor David, and he's fighting the real Goliath, which is maybe he dies on a place called the Skull. Anyway, that was just a quick musing for free. But he's standing in all the places that we were too afraid to stand in so that we don't look back and say, oh my gosh, I didn't have a chance to prove myself. We can look back and say, Jesus is still proving me in every place where I failed to prove myself. He's being for me what I couldn't be in front of other people. Those moments are not wasted moments. They're moments that Jesus is transfiguring for you. He's healing the moments that you couldn't stand up in. And he's also healing you so that when you face another moment where you say, no matter what, I'm going to stand up in this moment, sometimes when we're too afraid, sometimes when we're dealing with fear, we either run from a moment or we fight aggressively in the moment, and both of those reveal fear. Right? Fight or is what happens when we panic. If we're too aggressive and we're acting like chariots or we're too fearful and we're running into the wilderness, guess who's in the wilderness meeting us? And guess who's standing there with no chariots around him at all facing the areas where we fled from? Your labor is never in vain. Because Jesus is picking up all the moments that we didn't handle well, and he's transfiguring those moments for us. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, in the Lord, your labor is never in vain. He answers the entire book of Ecclesiastes in one verse. In the Lord... Your labor is never in vain because everything that life took from you that makes you feel like your labor is vain and not going to work, Jesus is still standing in those moments, being for the people in those moments what you couldn't be for yourself or for them. And he's strengthening you now to handle those moments as they come up differently. Moses our labor feels in vain when the chance to finish well is taken. God, this, one, this one stresses me out. When the chance to finish well is taken. This one stresses me out because Moses literally was like, I don't want to go get the people from Egypt. And God makes him go. Like sets a bush on fire and makes him go. And Moses does everything the way God told him to. Rob, he did everything the way God told him to. Plagues, frogs, lice, death. He's killing animals and painting blood on doorways. He's doing all these things. Hitting rocks and water's coming out. Quail, manna, six million people complaining. I mean, have you ever driven to church with like a few kids complaining? I know you have, because I've seen your face when you get here sometimes. <laughs> like, he did everything right. And then in this ambiguous story, he's like, okay, God, 
Those people are complaining again, and God's like, go tell the rock to spit out some water. And Moses hits the rock, and, the, and, and water comes out, and God's like, you sinned. Let's just pause for a second. So let's just say I hit it instead of spoke to it. By now, can you give me some flexibility here? Water came out. I got water to come out of a rock. I'm in trouble. Yes, I told you to speak to it, and you smacked it. I have wanted to smack so many people, God, <laughs> and I've smacked exactly none of them. As a matter of fact, you told me, God, you wanted to smack them, and I had you change your mind. Now I hit a rock, and I can't go to the promised land? As a matter of fact, it just dawned on me as I said that, maybe God was blessing him and saying, you don't have to go to the promised land with these people. You can stay here and relax on the mountain. So maybe my whole sermon point is ruined now. Moses, it turns out, I was like, Bill, stop this sermon. That mountain was amazing. The people were not there. I got to watch them from afar. It was quiet and chill. So I don't really know where to go now. I think we just interpreted that for the final time. No. And then we, we, we sit there and we say in these moments of our life, I can think of 20 of them. I got it right the whole day. I'm going to be patient today. I'm going to pack the car for vacation today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a good dad on vacation. The whole day. And then like right at the end of the day, Sophia, nye, 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 nye. I love her. I'm the fruit of the spirit. I love you. Sophia, stop being an idiot. Boom. Last minute of the day, you're like, Why? Why? And then, and then your wife, who just hypothetically is like, oh, you ruined the day. The day I messed up in the last 10 seconds. The day. But that happens with life often. Man, we go so hard. We get it well. We do things right. And then it's like, it's like everything you did right happened in a moment where life didn't celebrate the right decision. But then when you get something wrong, it happens at the one time where that wrong germinates into a garden of consequence out of nowhere. And you're like, why? How come all the right things I do don't grow like this? I do right things, and God's like, be patient. There will be fruit in a decade. Be patient. There will be fruit when you get to heaven. I do one thing wrong, and sin is like, I got fruit for you. Here's candy. Here's consequences. It's there. It grew fast, like a chia pet. It just grew super fast. Moses has got to be like, they made a golden calf and prayed to it. I hit a rock when I should have spoken to I'm in trouble because I didn't speak to a rock. Help me understand this. But there's moments in life where we sit there and say, I got it right all the way. And then when it counted, I got it wrong. And the consequence to Moses is, on this mountain, you'll die. It's like, that one got me. Because that's all of us. Get it right for so long. Mess up once and it feels like the mess up just undoes everything. So what does Jesus do? John 19. So Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and when he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
Jesus climbed up to the hill where Moses died and took that, mo that moment from Moses and transfigured it. He died on a mountain called the place of the skull, the place of the mind, the place where all of our sin starts right here. He goes to that place and he does what Moses couldn't do. He doesn't speak to the rock. He doesn't strike the rock. He becomes the rock that is struck. He becomes the rock that is spoken to, not with holy words, but with words of mockery. And out of his side, the blood of redemption and the water of baptism flows. And he lands himself in the moment where Moses failed and says, I see your failure. I will raise you redemption. And Moses stands on the Mount of Transfiguration where he last stood alive. And he doesn't need to look beyond to the promised land because the promised land is talking to him. The promised land is talking to him. When you stand face to face with Jesus, and I'm not talking about when you die, I'm talking about when you come to the table of the Lord, when you open up your Bible, when you pray, when you stand face to face with him, you are looking at somebody who's standing in that moment that you got wrong, making it right. Saying your wrong doesn't end the story the way your brain is telling you your wrong ends the story. My right is going to be the end of your story. I'm the promised land. You can be in it now, in the midst of your wrong. Like I said before, if that hand is limp because I can't reach out to him or because I won't reach out to him, he's still holding my wrist. And that's what he's telling you. If you're literally, if you can sit here right now and say, I can think, actually think to a moment that if I would have done one simple thing differently, the course of life of maybe one of my own kids would be different right now. He's not just dying in the moment where you failed redeeming it, but he's dying in the place of the skull because he wants you to start to think about it different. He doesn't just want you saying, okay, Jesus made it right. He wants you to think about, he wants to re-narrate that story for you in a way when, when you look at it, because what does Paul say about Moses' failure? He says the rock that water came out of was none other than the rock of Christ. And he talks about Jesus being struck. So when Paul, who's now saved, thinks back to Moses' failure, he doesn't see it as a failure. He sees Moses' failure as a prophecy of Jesus because Jesus is transforming our failures and the way people view them. This is worth being excited about. Not because I'm saying something dope, but because... Because not only will God re-narrate and re-heal and, and fix my failure, but he will, get to, he will help the people who I failed to see that moment better than the way it actually happened. <clears throat> One moment of sentiment, and then we'll move on to something more sentimental. <laughs> my mom and dad often say, oh my gosh, I wish I could have that moment back. But the funny thing is, and I'm not just saying this, I wouldn't bring it up if I agreed with them. I'm bringing it up because I want to, because I want to say this for all parents. 
And actually, I'm going to tell a quick story that Frank, my brother, was, was present to. When my parents tell me what they did wrong, I don't remember it that way. I don't remember it that way. <clears throat> and I'm not saying that because I'm good, because I, I wish I could remember it the way they were saying and maybe have some leverage over them. You know what I'm saying? No, I can't. I don't remember it that way. And when Randall Worley was here, Frank, I'm going to butcher this story. At the, at the cookout, you could tell everybody the right version of it. But Frankie and Randall and, and I and me, doesn't matter. Me, I, one of them. Doesn't matter. We're, we're down there. We're at the house. All of us guys are down there at the house. And Frank and Randall are talking about how we did as dads. And I'm sitting there listening to them like, I have no hope in the world. <laughs> and Randall tells this story about a moment he had with his son where he's apologizing to his son, and his son calls him one day and tells him, when you say these things, I don't remember them the way that you're saying them. And they both had like this, this teary moment that meant so much because God not only heals you and redeems you from the mistake you made, but he redeems the way that people remember it. He does. When we do this in remembrance of him, we remember our remembering. We remember even our memories. They change. The Holy Spirit can fall in our memories and not make it like it didn't happen. God would never do that. He would never make it like it didn't happen because then his redemption of it would be a lie. He helps us see it from a more full perspective with Jesus in it, in a way that we didn't see it with Jesus in it when it happened. Last one. Our labor feels in vain when our chance to hold the moment is taken. This one got me. Because I was watching Chris's ordination and I was remembering mine. Room full of people. All my friends here from all over the country. The worship team singing as I came down the aisle, I have decided to follow Jesus, which was my favorite song growing up. And I just remember, and, and, and I was sitting there look, look, watching Chris and just knowing that like, gener like layers of people from his life are in this room right now. And I say it to everybody who gets married, like right now, like I say it every wedding, this wedding right now, this is, this is the best it's going to be. <laughs> look how perfect this is right now. Everybody's here. They're happy to see you. You're happy to see each other. You're all dressed up like this is the mountaintop. This is it. The day you got baptized, came up out of the water, psh, doves landing on you, Holy Spirit speaking over you, everybody cheering for you. It's the top. And the Spirit drove him out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's like, ah, oh, man, but can we go back to the doves? And you look at it and you're just like, I want that moment back. Because I haven't tasted a moment like that. And so Peter, watching the law and the prophets talk to Jesus about Jesus' exodus, it's an unbelievable conversation to be privy to. He says, let me make a tabernacle for all of you. 
because if I can get, if I can build something around this, I can keep this moment here. I can keep it. And there are so many of us who are living our life trying to recreate our best memory, trying to recreate our best moment, trying to recreate the moment where we felt fully ourselves and the people around us felt fully themselves and saw us fully. Trying to recreate it. People are doing this all different kinds of ways, trying to recreate the best moment. Or, at the very least, holding every other moment hostage to those moments. You know what Jesus does? God interrupts Peter. And we don't know any follow-up between Peter and Jesus about this. And we assume they must not have talked about it. But I'm sure they did. Knowing Peter's character and Jesus' love, I'm sure they talked about it. Jesus, uh, about, the, uh, about the tabernacle thing, when God threw smoke in my face and interrupted me. Can I talk to you? Actually, Peter, I want to talk to you about that. Do you know why I didn't let you build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for me, and one for Elijah? Because I was building three tabernacles called Peter, James, and John. Catch that. You wanted to build tabernacles for my presence to stay in, but you would have built them of brick and mortar. I didn't want you to do that because I'm making you, James and John, the three tabernacles that will forever hold this moment in you. This might be why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, other word for that tabernacle, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Peter somehow gets the idea from wanting to build around a moment to hold it to realizing that he is the holder of the moment. He doesn't have to build something to hold it. He is the holder of the moment. He carries that moment with him everywhere he goes. And the fruit of that moment births out of him everywhere he goes. How do we know this? We know Peter was learning to be a tabernacle because God called him out on his racial tendencies. Cornelius is coming to your house. He's an Italian and Peter's like, I would never go to a Gentile's house. And God's like, okay, so we're going we're gonna to send you this vision when you're starving of all these reptiles, and I'm going to tell you to eat them, and you're going to say, I don't want to eat them. And then I'm going to say, don't call common what I have called holy. Two minutes later, the Gentiles arrive, people of an other, and up until that moment, lesser ethnic group to, than Peter thought. All of a sudden, he goes to their house, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. What happened? Peter realized in that moment, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was the one who felt like he didn't deserve to have that moment, and God let him have it anyway. So now, all of a sudden, other people who Peter originally didn't think deserved to have that moment were having it anyway. Why? Because Peter was the moment. He became the thing that he was trying to hold on to. 
He became the tabernacle he was trying to build. He became a conduit in the holding place of the Holy Spirit to be poured out on other people who he previously thought didn't deserve it. So we spend all of our time trying to recreate moments when we're carrying those best moments with us. They're part of who we are, and we can offer them to other people in part and parcel as we live our life. Those moments aren't over because we've passed them. They're alive and well in us and maybe more real and more alive in us now as Jesus and the Spirit are churning them and sanctifying them and, and mixing them and baking them into bread of a moment that's better than the moment we had. This is what he's doing for us. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Your labor is never in vain. It might feel like the moment is being taken from you. It might feel like you were too timid. It might feel like you didn't say something that you should have said. It might feel like you can't. You failed at the last second. But I'm telling you right now, this table that we are about to come to after we pray this table reminds us that Jesus has taken all of those moments of brokenness and he's baking them into the bread of life. Nothing is wasted in his presence. Nothing is wasted. And if you look back and say, so many mistakes, which means there's going to be so many mistakes, we can learn to be like Joseph, we can learn to be like the psalmist and the, and, the, and the writer of Proverbs who says, here's the thing, righteous people aren't people who don't fall. They're people who fall seven times and get up every time. Righteousness is not getting all the moments right. Righteousness is standing up after bad moments and saying there's another one coming. I'm going to handle that one. And every moment that God touches in the present, when he touches any moment, he touches all the moments. Everything is healed when he does something for you today. You don't have to try to chase it. You don't have to try to become something right now to prove it to yourself. You don't have to try to become somebody today to mask the fact that you feel like a nobody. You don't have to do these things. You just have to look at this broken bread in a few minutes and realize he can put brokenness back together, which means me and my broken self just has to stand before him today and he will transfigure my brokenness and maybe pe people will catch up to seeing what you'll see in yourself now but just because somebody else can't see it in you doesn't mean you shouldn't see it in yourself I want you to hear that just because it might not being be being affirmed tomorrow by people at your job or your social networks or your kids or your friends just because someone else isn't saying it over you that doesn't mean it's not true in you it's just taking them time to catch up what's happening in you right now Before we come to the table of the Lord, I think it's important that we pray for the world around us. It's, it's important that we receive a moment where God offers us a word. And then before we come and receive the food that he's offering us, it's important to remember to be self-offering. Amen? So at this time, Courtney is going to lead us in the prayers of the people. Your response will be on the screen. Let's prayerfully read through this and respond with the right response. Salem, let us pray for the church and for the world. O oh Lord our God, we ask that all who confess your name may be united in your truth, live together in your love, and reveal your glory in the world. Guide and grow your church, both locally here in Beacon and in the Hudson Valley, and globally, 
Lord, in your mercy, hear our our prayer. Guide the people in our country and in all the nations in the ways of justice and peace, that we may honor one another and serve the common good. Give discernment and open-hearted listening to those in positions of authority. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Bring an end to wars, violent conflicts, and oppression, the effects of which are felt throughout the fabric of humanity. Let your goodness and mercy embrace and empower those struggling under the burden of injustice, those who are seeking life-giving refuge, and those who are caught up in loss, fear, and uncertainty. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Give us all a reverence for the earth as your own creation, that we may steward its resources rightly in the service of others and to honor and glory and to your honor and glory. Bring healing and relief to those who suffer the effects of drought, fire, and flood. Grow in us a spirit of gratitude and joyful observation that with you we may honor as good those things you have created that give us nourishment, shelter, and the very air we breathe. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Bless all whose lives are closely linked with ours, our families, friends, neighbors, and co-workers, and grant that we may serve Christ in them and love one another as he loves us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Grant that we, as your church, may grow in love and care for ourselves and for our neighbor, that no one may say we passed them by in our haste or self-righteousness. Comfort and heal all those who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. Give them courage and hope in their troubles and bring them the joy of your salvation. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We commend to your mercy all who have died, that your will for them may be fulfilled, and we pray that we may share with all your saints in your eternal kingdom. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. O Lord our God, accept the fervent prayers of your people. In the, in the multitude of your mercies, look with compassion upon us and all who turn to you for help. For you are gracious, O lover of souls. And to you we give glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.